0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Following the atrocities, the brutal torture and murder of Israeli civilians, and the kidnapping of at least 200 hostages by Hamas on October 7th, Israel mounted a massive military response. We are in a shifting, dangerous historical moment. There are few better equipped to help us navigate through the web of Middle Eastern geopolitics than today's guest, Itamar Rabinovich, author of Middle Eastern Maze, Israel, the Arabs, and the Region. In this update to his earlier work, The Lingering Conflict, published by Brookings in 2012, Rabinovich delves deeper and informs readers on the recent twists and turns of the Middle East conflict. With a storied career as both an academic historian and a diplomat, notably Israel's ambassador to the U.S. and a peace negotiator with Syria, Rabinovich brings a unique blend of scholarly rigor and real-world experience. This allows him to discuss Arab-Israeli dynamics, not just as an independent issue, but also within the broader canvas of Middle Eastern regional and international politics. Welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, and I'm honored to welcome Ambassador Itamar Rabinovich to the show today. Ambassador Rabinovich, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Renee. Pleasure to be with you and always with the Van Leer Institute that I have always uh, appreciated highly.
1: Mr. Ambassador, the situation in the Middle East today is more fluid and more dangerous than it's been in a very long time. You've documented the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict since 1948. How do you think the understanding or misunderstanding of this history has shaped the present dynamics in the region?
0: One important thing to realize and understand is that uh, it is no longer just the Arab-Israeli conflict, and now there is an Iranian-Israeli conflict, which is far more dangerous than the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict is uh, in a paradoxical state because uh, in in one way, uh, it's petering out. Uh, Arab states uh, have come to the conclusion, quite a few of them, came to the conclusion that they have given 70 years or so to the Palestinian cause, that enough is enough, that they have their own interests to follow and have been reconciling or making peace with Israel or disengaging from from the conflict. At the same time, uh, the Palestinian issue is with us. Uh, Yes, uh, you have on the ground and uh, practically equal number of uh, Palestinians and Jews west of the Jordan. Uh, We have the West Bank, we have uh, uh, Israeli Arab, Palestinian population of nearly 2 million, and uh, there is Gaza, which was always there as the most intractable component of the Palestinian uh, problem. So uh, this is a a complex situation. It's part of the Arab-Israeli conflict mounting a positive track, and uh, the other part of it uh, remaining on a very dangerous path, but overshadowed, by the Iranian threat. Iran is not just another Middle Eastern country. It's a large, powerful country, almost 90 million people, rich with oil, sophisticated elite armed forces, and the zeal of a revolutionary regime that has not lost its zeal since 1979, and with, I would say, diabolical hatred of the State of Israel and a genuine desire to destroy it. And Iran has been very successful in uh, encircling israel uh, with a direct and indirect presence in lebanon in syria and in gaza and what we saw uh, on the uh, 7th of october uh, was uh, something that uh, resulted at least in part from iranian support help and inspiration and what should have been in the original uh, iranian script hezbollah's attack uh, on the northern galilee
1: Uh, Yes, and it it is widely believed that Iran was actively behind the Hamas massacre. So given Iranian irrational and extreme hatred for Jews and Israel, and given its uh, nuclear ambitions and its positioning in the larger regional politics, how do you view its relationship with Israel and its influence on the Arab-Israeli dynamics going forward, what measures or strategies do you think are necessary to effectively address the Iranian nuclear challenge?
0: Okay. First of all, uh, you know, as long as this regime is in power in Iran, there is no hope of improving uh, or moderating the Israeli-Iranian relationship. I mean, there is a genuine hatred and, uh, you know, a religiously based belief that uh, victory is on the side. Second, the the nuclear issue. Uh, Iran, we have to admit it, is now a a nuclear threshold country. It's not far from uh, being able to build a bomb. Uh, They have yet to go a certain distance in order to arm a missile or create other ways of delivering uh, nuclear weapons, but they are there. They may not make the deliberate, explicit choice to go fully nuclear. They may prefer to stay where they are now, but Iran being a nuclear threshold country is dangerous enough. Uh, second, all international efforts um, to stop this and all Israeli efforts to stop this uh, failed. I mean, there they are. Three, for, uh, now, uh, for the first time, an important Arab country, Saudi Arabia, came out in an interview given by uh, Crown Prince uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, to Fox News. For the first time, there was an explicit statement on the Iranian nuclear uh, by a Saudi ruler, de facto, who said, uh, if they have it, we will have it. It's too dangerous for us. So uh, the problem has been put on the the world's desk, or agenda, as, as it were. Because, if Iran is practically nuclear, and Saudi Arabia is going nuclear, if both of them do that, Turkey and Egypt will not stay far behind. And to have a fully nuclearized Middle East would be a real powder keg. And the world has to cope with that. Uh, Not easy, the United States is not in a position to dictate. Uh, The Russians, the Chinese are not cooperative. The West Europeans are always more timid. Uh, So that's a major challenge for us, for the Middle East, and for the world.
1: Yes, it is. We're already a powder keg. Uh, But let's talk about America. Uh, Along with revulsion and horror at Hamas's sadistic terror rampage against Israelis, Uh, the Biden administration expressed its strongest support for Israeli self-defense. Let's step back and take a longer view of American foreign policy in the region. How do you evaluate the evolution of U.S. policy from the Trump to the Biden administrations? And in what ways did these changes influence the region and Israel's strategic position?
0: Yeah, Uh, With your permission, I'll go back one administration and, and, and begin with Obama.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, Obama uh, Obama wanted uh, to, to use the American expression pivot out of the region. Right. He felt that uh, he and you know, members of his administration, and let's remember that President Biden was his vice president, felt that the United States was too heavily involved invested in the region, too long, costly and useless war in wars in mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Iraq and that the real challenge to America was in the Asia-Pacific region with the uh, rising China, and, and therefore the United States had to reduce its in, uh, direct involvement in the Middle East and to uh, invest more time and effort see resources in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, this was both a policy and a perception of this policy in, in the region. Came uh, uh, President uh, Trump, with a very mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, he was an isolationist, more than Obama. He, uh, he, he disengaged from a number of international commitments and uh, in many respects was an isolationist. But he was interested in the Middle East. He, he had a relationship with the Saudi ruling house, with the Emirati ruling house, combining business and, uh, and, and policy. Uh, when I say business, it's also pe- personal or family business. Um, uh, he, uh, he wanted very much to broker an Israeli-Palestinian deal. Uh, he, uh, he was the author, or at least the reputed author, of a book called The Art of the Deal, and he wanted probably a Nobel Prize for uh, fixing the uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and he invested an effort in that in a a peculiar way, but he did. But in other respects, let's say with regard to Syria, uh, with regard to Iraq, uh, he wanted to disengage and it was a very peculiar peculiar policy. In a complex way that uh, we may not have the time to get into, from his efforts Um, uh, through a team of uh, three Jewish uh, members, uh, two of them uh, very hawkish, uh, uh, to to draw an Israeli-Palestinian final status agreement, Uh, the unintended consequence became the Abraham Accords. And uh, to his credit, President Biden used his influence, uh, used American resources, to make some of these agreements happen, let's say the Israeli-Moroccan deal would not have happened, but for the recognition of their position in the Sahara or the Sudanese deal, such as it is, uh, he invested efforts, and he deserves uh, credit for uh, for that. And then comes in President Biden. Um, again, he, he he would like to continue, in principle, the policy of Obama, if uh, people think... Uh, away from the Middle East. His effort is on China, and of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, revives the Cold War in, uh, in Europe. These are very important uh, issues. Um, he determined not to invest a major effort in trying to resolve the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, he was burned, like other members of the uh, Obama administration. And with regard to Saudi Arabia, he's hostile. Uh, He's hostile. And uh, then, of course, the uh, brutal assassination of the American Saudi journalist uh, Khashoggi in Istanbul led him to denounce uh, the Saudi crown prince. And that that created a very negative phase in the relationship between the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia. More recently... uh, And particularly given the Chinese role in brokering uh, reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and and Iran, he he and his administration became determined to fix the American-Saudi relationship. Three major issues on the table there, including a defense pact. In order to um, get the defense pact through Congress, uh, he needs AIPAC and Israeli support. And he, therefore, moderated his criticism of uh, Netanyahu's government and its uh, judicial overall so-called. So and finally, in September, he met with Netanyahu, uh, an okay, uh, OK meeting. And the issue on the table was uh, trying to broker this uh, trilateral deal, American-Saudi-Israeli. Uh, and I believe. I don't have evidence, but I believe that the timing of the October 7 attack was, among other things, uh, meant uh, to disrupt uh, this rapprochement that the Iranians definitely do not want to see.
1: And do you think it will succeed? That it has succeeded in making that uh, tripartite agreement dead?
0: That, no, uh, postponing it, and it was not fully alive before because in addition to the difficulties uh, of getting it through uh, Congress, uh, there was the Israeli-Palestinian dimension. There was a Saudi demand and an American demand that uh, Israel uh, carry out a series of gestures, at least, uh, vis-à-vis the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. I'm not familiar with all the details here, but uh, not a two-state solution, but something uh, beyond uh, hollow statements. I'm not sure that Netanyahu would have wanted or would have been able to get it through his coalition or that he would have been willing to lose his coalition uh, in an effort to become uh, the peacemaker of Saudi Arabia. This, these were all issues up in the air. So. Now it is frozen. It is not dead, and it, the ability to revive it will depend on the events of the coming weeks and months. That, of course, uh, we have yet to wait. We have yet to wait for.
1: Okay, let's uh, move around the region a little bit and take a look at Syria. Uh, with your experience as a peace negotiator with Syria, how do you interpret the long-term effects of the Syrian civil war? on Israel's northern front, Um, and as a follow-up to that, uh, Russia's role, Russia has been uh, militarily involved in Syria and has become a a player in this region, and how does that affect Israel's strategy and Russian-Israel relations unfolding?
0: Yeah, Uh, let's begin with this final point. Unfortunately, uh, what Used to be a, a reasonably good relationship between Israel and and post-Soviet Russia it has now become negative. Uh, the way Putin acts, the way he speaks, the way uh, anti-Semitism is uh, evident in in so many places in in Russia, is is a bad development. But uh, but there it is now. Uh, and of course, we have Russia as a neighbor in, in Syria. What has happened in Syria is that uh, the, uh, the civil war ended not with a victory but uh, by Bashar al-Assad, but by Bashar al-Assad managing to remain in power with and after major military support by Russia and Iran and a variety of Shiite militias, including Hezbollah. But he is not really in control of Syria. He's in control of about 60% of Syria. About 40% of Syria is not under state control. And even in the areas under state control, um, he's not in full control. Uh, There is the Russian presence, the Iranian presence, uh, Shiite militias. And uh, also the uh, Assad family um, became overtly a mafia family. I mean, one of the major branches of the Syrian economy now is a state-sponsored uh, drug uh, uh, industry and uh, trade. So, mm. Syria itself is not a military threat to Israel. Uh, the Syrian army is still not in shape, but um, there is Russian military presence, uh, more in terms of uh, a ground-to-air missile uh, batteries, but there they are. Uh, and... Uh, um, the Iranian effort to build a military infrastructure and a missile uh, system in Syria in parallel to what they have already built in Lebanon. In Lebanon, they have a massive arsenal of rockets and missiles uh, in the hands of Hezbollah under their overall responsibility, but in the hands of Hezbollah, what they try to do in Syria was to build a system completely owned and operated by them. And Israel has been trying to disrupt this and to destroy this effort. And uh, this is what we called for several years, the war between the wars. The Israeli right. offensive against Iran. Iranians uh, have not effectively responded, uh, so we thought, uh, to Israeli attacks in Syria, to Israeli attacks or assassinations of individual scientists and other uh, malfeasant elements but they have now responded uh, very effectively and painfully so through the Hamas attack uh, on October 7th.
1: Hamas is often compared to ISIS, uh, another cruel and brutal terror group with similar ideology about creating a caliphate in the whole world, uh, and, the, and the rise and the fall of Islamic State was a tumultuous period in the Middle East. How has this impacted Israel's security concerns and its relationships with its neighbors?
0: Yeah, ha- Hamas is uh, began, and still to a great extent, is the Palestinian branch of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood it was did not begin at least as a jihadi organization like uh, ISIS but as a fundamentalist muslim organization but it has radicalized in, in the meantime to some extent under iranian influence and and of course what we saw on on october 7 uh, were ISIS was ISIS like behavior be, beheadings and all uh, and all that and uh, it is what it is now. And of course, even if we manage to destroy, get them out of uh, the Gaza Strip, the elements of the organization will remain in, in uh, Middle Eastern countries. They're in Qatar, they're in Turkey, they're in other places, and maybe it will go international, like ISIS. ISIS, the caliphate is destroyed, but ISIS is not. And there are always signs of ISIS uh, trying to research. So I think Hamas will, will also join this category of an organization that will have been dealt a major blow, but uh, will not have been uh, fully eliminated.
1: And is that why uh, Egypt is so reluctant to let uh, Gazan civilians take refuge there during this fighting? Um
0: these two, but uh, mostly, you know, Egypt has its own problems. It's a country of 100 million people that it can barely feed. It is not interested uh, in a Palestinian refugee population. And I think as uh, the President Sisi also explained, quite uh, frankly, he said if you host these Palestinians, there would be Hamas elements. They will attack Israel from Sinai. Israel will retaliate and will spoil our relationship with Israel. So he's, he's simply not interested. Uh,
1: and nor, apparently, are any of the other Arab uh, neighbors in, in the region.
0: No, I think, I think the only viable option, uh, if we do not want to stay in Gaza, which I think we do not, uh, would be to, uh, to have the Palestinian Authority come back. They were expelled in 2007. They themselves are not in the greatest of shapes and they uh, are on the eve of a succession uh, crisis uh, and they will not uh, they, they, they will not want to take uh, Gaza directly from Israel, as they use the term, we will not come back to Gaza on Israeli bayonets, but there can be uh, uh, arrangements for an interim force, international, regional, to take over the Gaza Strip, and hand it over to the Palestinian Authority uh, later on. It's the only uh, the only solution I can envisage where uh, someone takes Gaza uh, from our hands, off our hands. Do you
1: think they want to after they, their experience?
0: Uh, i think they want it because i mean they do want at the end of the day uh, to uh, to have a palestinian state in the west bank and gaza they cannot have it in the west bank but they definitely want gaza as part of their entity and not uh, what i call a three-state
1: solution yeah right right and Let's not forget about Turkey. Uh, Turkey has undergone significant political and strategic shifts in the past 20 years or so. Talk about its current role in the Middle East, especially in relation to Israel, and also as the country in between the Middle East and Europe.
0: Yeah, Turkey... Uh, Not just between the Middle East and Europe. Turkey is uh, uh, almost between uh, everything and everything. I mean, it it probably has the best geopolitical uh, location uh, that you can think of. Uh, It is on the Mediterranean. It's on the Black Sea. uh, It's the bridge between Asia and and Europe. It has extensions into uh, the Caucasus and uh, Central Asia. There are Turkic peoples. Uh, in this uh, region, they are involved in, uh, with Azerbaijan against uh, Armenia. And uh, they have all these Turkish-speaking post-Soviet republics in Central Asia. Uh, they, uh, For many years, the legacy of Atatürk, the founder of the Turkish Republic, uh, was a vision of uh, Turkey being part of Europe, but they've been rebuffed. And Erdogan's uh, vision is twofold one is an islamist and secondly uh, he wants uh, he wants to revive turkish glory and if it cannot be in europe then let it be in its uh, immediate environment in the middle east and Turkey is is active in syria uh, in libya in yemen in somalia Uh, it it wants to be a hub for Middle Eastern gas or Mediterranean gas going to, to Europe. It's a very ambitious country. It's a country uh, with significant capabilities. I mean, you know, from the civilian point of view, let's just look at, uh, at, uh, at the airline. Very impressive, one of the world's great, largest, and, and most effective airlines. They've been able to do that. They're a very large contracting company. They built Angurian Airport. It's a country with uh, capability and yet much of it is an Islamist country, <clears throat> much of the countryside is very conservative and uh, planted in the past. Uh, and uh, Erdogan himself, you know, is, as I said, he's an Islamist ruler. His ideology is close to that of the Muslim Brotherhood. He is therefore close to Qatar and Hamas. Uh, he's not a friend of Israel. But uh, in, in recent uh, years, since he wants to uh, improve his position in in Washington to normalize their position, he understands that uh, an improvement of relations with Israel is uh, is part of that, and the relationship regime has been improved. It is still not free of tensions. Uh, I would not advise Israel to to count on Turkey. Uh, you must have seen that there is a strict. Uh, a warning against Israelis going to Turkey, because it, it may be full of uh, Iranian-inspired terrorists uh, looking to abduct or to hurt uh, Israelis. Uh, so it's a problematic actor. But look at the... And that's a point I do make in the book. Uh, the Middle East has been transformed by the fact that Iran and Turkey are now full participants in Middle Eastern politics. So these are two very large countries together, almost two hundred million people, powerful, developed, and the three strongest military powers in the region are not Arab. They are Turkey, Iran, and Israel. It's a different Middle East.
1: And Iran and Turkey, like uh, Russia, all have expansionist dreams. Uh, does does that factor into what's happening? Yeah.
0: I don't. It, it, Turkey uh, only wants some territory in Syria. It, uh, it took it took over a significant strip along the uh, Turkish Syrian border. Um, it, its uh, main concern there is Kurdish. Uh, Turkey has a very large Kurdish minority of about twenty percent, um, and the Turks are afraid that it may become secessionist. And there are two large Kurdish concentrations in northern Iraq and in uh, in northern Syria. And uh, the Turks somehow have a working relationship with the Kurds in Iraq, but not with the ones in Syria. And the anne- de facto annexation of a significant strip uh, in uh, Syria uh, is meant directly to create a buffer against the uh, Syrian Kurds.
1: Um- What about Israel's internal politics? Uh, Israel experienced a great deal of political instability in recent years, more so this year, but actually in the past four or five years. Uh, How has this internal political crisis influenced its foreign policy? And uh, where do you see, or do you see, Israeli politics changing going forward?
0: Okay, I'll, I'll put it uh, directly. I'm uh, a, a strong critic of uh, the current uh, government. I think it's the worst government we ever had, including extremist uh, elements. Um, and, you know, if you or any of our listeners open Google's something called Betzaler Smotrich's decision plan of 2017, it's on the internet. Will find it, uh, an explicit plan to annex the West Bank and create here a one-state. I think it it always was a folly, but given the events of you know the last ten days, one must understand how foolish it is. So to have a government with such elements is a problem. Secondly, the whole unexplainable drive for judicial overall in the face of these mounting dangers. Remember that the a uh, chief of staff wanted to meet with the prime minister on the eve of a vote in the knesset on the so-called reasonableness issue the prime minister refused to see him he wanted to warn him about the imminent uh, dangers not specifically about the attack in gaza but about this imminent danger of hezbollah and hamas uh, joining up in a forefront uh, attack on on israel so you know i think uh, there, there will be, uh, of course, now we're in wartime and uh, the war must first be completed and we must have a unity of, of purpose. When, when this is over, uh, when this is over, uh, there will have to be soul-searching and, and, and reckoning on all levels, uh, the military, the intelligence community, and, and uh, the political level. So I must say that the military and the leaders of the intelligence community were more forthright than the politicians by taking responsibility. Uh, Another uh, element in uh, um, impact on foreign policy was uh, this uh, peculiar uh, relationship with other uh, non-liberal democracies. uh, Poland, Hungary, there is uh, what I call a right-wing international, with Steve Bannon in America, the, the Hungarians, the Poles, other semi-authoritarian or fully authoritarian countries. And unfortunately, parts of the Israeli government uh, joined this coalition. This is something that we should put an end to. We we want to be a liberal democracy, fully planted uh, in uh, in the West. And I, I hope that uh, the huge tragedy that uh, we went through will, will help us uh, pull ourselves together. Now, I'd like to emphasize the importance of leadership. Uh, Israel is not the only fragmented society uh, around the globe, there are quite a few. And what enables fragmented societies to live together is leadership, leadership that broadcasts and foments unity. And uh, whoever becomes uh, our leader in the years to come uh, will have to make this a very high priority, to unite rather than to divide.
1: Absolutely right. That's that's essential. <clears throat> on on a personal level, having served both as an academic historian and in diplomatic capacities, how have you balanced the scholarly need for objectivity with the very real and personal experiences of diplomacy and negotiation?
0: Um you know i think one of the one of the popes i I don't remember which one uh, i think was also an or maybe a bishop in the middle ages was also an astronomer and he was asked how do you reconcile your catholicism with uh, your being an astronomer so he said when i look at the sky i'm i'm not a catholic and when i go to church i don't look at the stars so uh, of course, in many respects, uh, diplomatic work uh, the conduct of foreign policy uh, can uh, rely in a big way on academic expertise. Some, some great policymakers, Kissinger, Albright, uh, others, uh, were originally academics and brought to bear a knowledge of history, international relations, uh, on the conduct of their uh of the policy but at the same time in the art of diplomacy of uh, getting people together of negotiating uh, of making things happen you you, you have to exercise uh, other qualities you have to be smart uh, manipulative you you need to to be able to uh, to be sensitive to people to read their character and uh, this this doesn't always sit together with uh, 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 with academic uh, academic values, um, and you know you have to do what you have to do, but you have to always be true to yourself. Let me give a, I think a recent example. There was a question of uh, this uh, horrid uh, effort to uh, saddle us with responsibility for the what happened in that Palestinian hospital in Gaza. It took the uh, it took the Israeli system about twelve hours. To come out with a a strong uh, version uh, well documented that this was not us that this was uh, an abortive uh, missile by islamic jihad and there were people who complained why didn't you do it right away the answer i think the correct one was that uh, your credibility is sometimes more important than your immediate impact and that is correct so Uh, When you are a diplomat, and you are also an academic, and you write books, in the conduct of your diplomacy, your honesty and credibility must always remain intact.
1: That's that's a good example. Uh, Because it's true, there were a a lot of complaints, and of course Israel lost the narrative to... uh, to Hamas who has no such constraints uh, and can say whatever they want and it gets picked up. Yeah. And, but also, but, yeah,
0: also, I mean, they were quick to do it, but there were also too many, too many uh, Western media outlets that were eager to, to seize on it and immediately blame us, what I call the, BBC, the BBC syndrome.
1: You're correct, and even after Israel very clearly documented it and and had a very good press conference and and many uh, Western news outlets aired the whole thing, still some reported as two sides. They say yeah. this and they say that. You know, which yeah. you know yeah, sometimes as, uh, there are no two sides. Uh, yeah. As
0: the late uh, Bernard Lewis used to say. Uh, Being even-handed means that you have two left hands. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: a good one. Yeah. Well, finally, Mr. Ambassador, with the shifting geopolitical dynamics, evolving threats and new alliances, what's your big vision for the Middle East in the next decade? Where do you see the most promise, and where lie the most significant challenges?
0: You know, I, uh, due to uh, to the Abraham Accords, uh, I, I've been going quite often to to the Gulf, uh, and I'm impressed by what I see there. Uh, yes, it. You know, you have to remember that the, in the Emirates, ten uh, percent are citizens and ninety percent are guest workers, but the ten percent are impressive, and the, the ruling elite is impressive, and the place is neat, orderly, effective, very impressive. Ruling elite. And I think what we have seen in recent decades is so much has shifted in the Arab world from in the war-torn and divided uh, Levant, uh, Egypt, uh, to the, to the uh, Gulf region. And I think the Gulf will, will continue to play uh, a more and more important uh, role in the Middle East. Uh, the other parts of the Middle East that uh, are fully disrupted, failed states, and you know, all that, Iraq, Syria, Libya, will continue to pull the region down and the region will need uh, external help in order at least to uh, hang together and not to sink.
1: Thanks so much for talking with me today, Ambassador Rabinovich.
0: Thank you, thank you so much. I, I enjoyed our conversation.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.